This is the 66th episode of this podcast. And every now and then I will repeat something that I discussed in the previous episode for several reasons. One is that it has been a long time since I discussed that topic and it's important enough to discuss again. But the other is that my thinking is evolving. Uh, especially after I'm applying the trust habits model and process to many organizations and individuals in the workshops. And I want to share my latest thinking on this topic. So today I will touch on a topic that I discussed in episode six of the first season in June of last year, and that's the relationship between micromanagement and trust. And I will give leaders actionable advice, and I can promise you that some of that is not advice that you would expect or even want to hear, but you should. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of the Book of Trust and facilitator of the Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? My sixth law of trust is that trust is reciprocal. And this is one example where it's reciprocal. And so I want to talk about this cycle. And, and I'll talk about the opposite cycle too. The cycle is the cycle between trust and autonomy. And the way the cycle starts is that the leader trusts the employee. What I found is that leaders will give their employees autonomy. There is a 67% correlation of that if they trust the employee. So if I trust you, 67% correlation, I will give you autonomy. If I don't trust you, I'm not going to give you autonomy, obviously, but there is this correlation. Um, when I talk about autonomy, I think it's very important that we define autonomy. And uh, ever since I worked on my doctoral research, the best definition I ever found was by Teresa Amabile in Harvard Business School. And, and she explained autonomy or the type of autonomy that is productive and, and leads to creativity in the workplace as not letting your employee decide which mountain to climb, but letting them decide and determine how to climb that mountain. Look, you can't just give your employee a, a free hand to uh, a, a blank check to do whatever they want to do in, in on company time and on salary. I mean, I need you here for a purpose, but I'm not going to micromanage how you achieve that. So we need to be very, very clear on what the outcomes are, what we're trying to achieve, why we're trying to achieve that. But then you need to let the employee do it their own way. So it starts with the leader trusting the employee. If the leader trusts the employee, there's a 67% correlation that the leader would give the employee autonomy. Again, autonomy to decide how to climb the mountain, not which mountain to climb. But as a result, the employee will now trust the leader. And when I say trust the leader, the employee will trust the leader enough to try things without the fear of consequences the employee will be willing to be more accountable for their own work 
And there are a whole set of benefits that come out of it because to the employee, the autonomy is a symptom of trust. And I'll talk more about the symptom part. It's a symptom of trust. And when the employee knows that the leader trusts them, there is a long list of benefits. Uh, they're going to be uh, they're going to experience a lot less stress, a lot higher engagement. Uh, there's a much higher probability that they're going to stay with the company, recommend the company to other friends and, and family, take fewer sick days. There are a lot of reasons why that trust is important. So the first cycle is the leader trusts the employee. The leader gives the employee autonomy. Therefore, the employee trusts the leader enough to try things to be more accountable. That's cycle number one. The opposite cycle, the dysfunctional cycle, the, the negative cycle, is the cycle of distrust and micromanagement. So now we have a leader who distrusts the employee. We don't trust that employee. If I don't trust that employee, I still have the same correlation of 67% between trust and autonomy. If I don't trust them, then I'm not going to give them autonomy. What am I going to give instead? I'm going to give bureaucracy. I'm going to give them rules, formalization. I want you to show me what you do before you send it out to a client. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what the cost is. Uh, I'm going to ask you to negotiate price with a client without knowing what the cost is. There's a whole bunch of instantiations of, of examples of what happens when you don't give autonomy. One reason for that is, is uh, wanting to have power. Uh, when a leader wants to have power, the more they can control the work of their employees, their subordinates, the more they feel power. So that, that could be a reason. But the bottom line is I'm, I'm going to start with the leader distrusts the employee and therefore the leader does not give autonomy. If the employee does not get autonomy, the employee will not trust the leader, will distrust the leader. Now the employee will be afraid to try things because they are not trusting the leader. They experience fear of the consequences. So I'm afraid of the consequences of uh, failure, so I'm not going to try anything. I'm not going to be accountable because I'm afraid to take responsibility when my leader micromanages everything that I do and maybe not the way I would want to do it. I will do exactly what my boss or what the policy or the rule or process says, even if I know it's the wrong thing to do because I don't get in trouble for following the rules or doing exactly what my boss said, even if it led to a negative consequence. I can always go back and say, hey, that's exactly what you told me to do. And that's an attitude that I call CYA attitude. So the cycle here is that the leader starts by distrusting the employee, therefore not giving them autonomy or giving them bureaucracy, instead micromanaging them. And therefore the employee doesn't trust the leader to do what's right, and instead they do what they're being told. Again, there's a, all the positive consequences we had for the employee feeling trust, because that distrust, micromanagement, is a symptom of distrust. And if I feel distrust, everything that, that was positive when I felt trust now is negative. 
I am more stressed. I'm less engaged. I'm less inclined to stay with this company. I'm much less inclined to recommend this company to other people, to bring them in, especially people that I care about. Doesn't matter how I look at it, trust and trustworthiness will always remain things that are hard to measure. They're hard to measure. It's, uh, you know, when you ask how much do you trust your boss, it's it's kind of hard to measure it. Or, or how much do you think that your boss trusts you? It's hard to measure. And so I look at things that are symptoms or trailing indicators that indicate whether trustworthiness or trust exists. So to me, micromanagement or the opposite autonomy are a trailing indicator for the existence of trust, for for the reasons that I explained uh, with the two cycles. If I feel that micromanagement exists, I know that uh, as a trailing indicator, I know that the boss does not trust me, that my leader doesn't trust me. It's a trailing indicator for that. It's also a leading indicator to the fact that I'm not trusting them. So if I know that micromanagement exists, I can assume that the employee does not trust the leader. By the way, that's not true 100% of the time, and I'll touch on that uh, a little later. But now the question is, why? And to answer this question, I'll, I'll go back to a study that I did in 2018 when I asked the question, what is the most important quality for you in another person? And I did give six types of people, your boss, your employees, your peers, a salesperson trying to sell you something, your government representative or your spouse. And number one, uh, I'm not going to bother with number five, but number one was trustworthiness with 61.2%. In fact, out of five, with 61.2%, trustworthiness was more, uh, was, was listed as the most important quality in another person, more than the next four qualities combined. Uh, but here's an interesting thing. Even though it's 61.2%, only in five of those six relationships, trustworthiness was listed as number one. Only in five. When I asked leaders about their employees, people who work for them, leaders put in number one, the most important quality with 47.5%, was the willingness to work hard. Not trustworthiness. Trustworthiness came in second, 39%. This reminds me always of a uh, quote from uh, Henry Ford, who said, uh, why is it that every time I ask for a pair of hands, they come with a brain attached? It's amazing. You know, in 2018, we're still thinking that way. But what does it mean? If I don't care about your trustworthiness, and it's not that leaders don't care about trustworthiness at all, but but it's really secondary to the willingness to work hard. What does it mean? Does it mean that I want to give you autonomy? To me, if you rank the willingness to work hard higher than trustworthiness, what it says is that you don't intend to give me autonomy. What it says to me is that you do want me to continue and follow what your instructions are to the letter, work hard in doing that, 
more than you really want to trust me to decide how I'm going to do it. What if the way I'm going to do it is not going to be working hard? It's going to be working smart. Well, you just told me that you care more about my willingness to work hard than my willingness to than my trustworthiness or my willingness to make my own decisions and maybe find a smarter way rather than a harder harder way to do things. So if leaders don't rank trustworthiness high, to me, that means that they don't intend or want to give autonomy. That's, that's, that doesn't come natural to them. By the way, when I asked employees on the flip side, employees rest, uh, uh, rated uh, or ranked trustworthiness of their leaders it's with 60% as the most important quality. It was the most important quality for them. But something else was interesting was that employees of all the six relationships, employees rated, ranked, graded the willingness to take risk, their boss's willingness to take risk at 20%, but at 20%, it was still three times higher than any other of the uh, six relationships. So employees gave a high ranking, relatively high ranking, to their boss's willingness to take risk. What risk do you, do you think that that employees wanted their boss to take? It's a risk on them. They want their boss to take a risk in giving them autonomy. So this kind of completes that cycle. It, it makes more sense. We know now that, that bosses micromanage because that's what they want to do. They do that, and, and you know that they do that because they don't rate the trustworthiness of their employees very high. And if they don't rate it as, as a high quality, what they're telling you is that they don't intend to trust the employee. And if you don't trust the employee, remember the, the first cycles that I described, then you're not going to give autonomy, but you don't have to. You know, and before we get into the argument of uh, whether autonomy is even good or bad, um, not only Teresa Amabile of Harvard identified autonomy as being important, but my own uh, doctoral research, I found that one of the strongest correlations to creativity and productivity was with autonomy. What I found is it was a 47.4% uh, correlation with a high statistical significance Uh if you care, it's with a P of less than 0.05 or 95% confidence is, is a better way to describe it. So with 95% confidence, I can tell you that there is a 47.4% impact of autonomy on creativity and productivity. So there are benefits here. There, there are very clear benefits to autonomy. So I think in general, what I'm saying here is that you need to have autonomy to have creativity and productivity. And leaders either need to find a way to give autonomy. And I'm gonna talk about that. I'm gonna talk about what leaders need to do uh, a little later, but in this episode, or they need to find other solutions. And I'll talk about that too. But it's important to note that not everyone wants autonomy. 
I remember back in Israel, I was uh, at, at some point, uh, I was the head of R&D for uh, research and development for this uh, technology company. I had several employees working for me, and I was the micromanager, period. I was a micromanager, I, and I knew that I was one. I didn't necessarily know back then the, the uh, negative outcome of that and that I'm hurting creativity and productivity. I didn't know, and I would venture to say that maybe even if I had known, maybe I wouldn't care. And I had two of my employees were working on this project, and I was very um, religiously and consistently micromanaging them. I mean, I would see them every day, ask them about every little step, uh, probably didn't read their, their expressions or didn't read them well enough to know that they were annoyed or not annoyed. I didn't know. And the thing is that at that time, my workload became so high that I just couldn't. I couldn't micromanage them. I didn't have the time to micromanage manage them. And by the way, believe me when I tell you, I thought I was being a bad boss if I can't micromanage them. If I cannot micromanage them. But I couldn't. I didn't have the time. So I just got both of them into my office and I said, look, I'm, I'm not going to have the amount of time that I had until now to manage your project. So I'm going to ask you to manage it yourselves. Uh, they started working together. I met them, I think at that point it was once in two weeks. And um, they had all the autonomy that they needed. Their goal was to take that system and pass it through the uh, French regulations that were very strict and, and we already failed. And, and that was, by the way, the reason why I said, you know what, from this moment on, uh, you manage it, uh, you take it through completion. I, I can't, you know, we already failed once. So they, they made changes to the system. They submitted it again. They failed again. They came back. I asked them, what, what did we learn? What do we know? What, what changes are you going to do? Go do it. And uh, they went on to do it again without me micromanaging. And, and again, I'll tell you, it did not feel well. It did not feel good for me to not be able to micromanage them. But I didn't have the time. I, there was no option for me. Then they submitted the second time and they passed. And after they passed, I brought them into my office. And I think one of the most fortunate things uh, that I learned from was that I brought them into my office separately. I brought the first one and I asked him, so how was the experience when, you know, I, I didn't have the time to micromanage you. So uh, you had to do your own thing. He, he was thrilled. He enjoyed it. It was great for him. It was a learning experience for me, but the, the second one was also a learning experience because when I asked the second one, and again, fortunately, individually, uh, so he wasn't there in the room when the first one said how thrilled and excited he was by having the autonomy over this project. The second one said, I felt like you were dumping your responsibilities on us, just like a hot potato. You, you took this hot potato of uh, passing the French regulations and you dropped it in our lap and uh, you took your own responsibility away from this project. That was eye-opening because it made me realize, one, that, uh, you know, eventually it really worked because uh, that autonomy... Um, 
they they ended up passing the regulation. So was it because of the autonomy? I don't know, but but they did pass. And when I wrote the book of trust, I found a study that was conducted at the Liverpool Hope University School of Business in 2014. And they asked about how important is work autonomy to you. They asked employees. I don't remember how many employees. 78% of the employees said that work autonomy was important to them. 78% said that it was important to them. It also showed a strong positive effect on creativity and productivity, which is something that, that Teresa Amabile found. And I found uh, the, uh, in my study, I found the 47.4% correlation. Not everybody wanted autonomy. 78% wanted autonomy. It's no doubt it's three out of four people, but it's not four out of four people. So that's something to also keep in mind. Not everybody wants autonomy. Uh, in fact, one, one of the uh, more recent works of Pet Lencioni, and I'll, I'll refer you to him, The Working Genius, uh, where he talks about six roles in... Um, or six geniuses, and and I know I took his uh, his self assessment, and uh, to me the uh, two geniuses were being an inventor and being a discerner. But there are people whose role is to execute. Or it's it's not that it's their role as much as this is what they like to do. They don't want to think. They don't want to try and be creative. Maybe they don't think that they are creative. Maybe they're not creative. Not everybody is creative. Not everybody has to be creative. But they're the people that wants, want to know exactly what you want from them, and they will execute it to the letter, and that's what they like to do. So not 100% of people think that uh, work autonomy is uh, autonomy is important to them. One last thing that I need to say before I, I jump into, so what does a leader need to do? Um, if you give autonomy, it must be visible and it must be expressed. You can't just know that you're giving autonomy without the employee uh, finding out or without the employee actually knowing that. I mean, they may end up finding out after the first time they fail in something, um, you know, they would be very hard pressed to come back and and you know share bad results or uh, give you bad news and, and then they'll find out that uh, you're okay with bad news i mean you're not celebrating it but you're accepting it and uh, you know it's not the end of the world but a better way would actually to make sure that this autonomy is visible expressed and i would say very clear again you're not telling your employees, do whatever you want to do and, uh, while you're here. You're telling them what is it that you want them to do, what is the mountain at, at a certain level, but you don't, you don't get involved below. You don't micromanage them. So it has to be visible and it has to be expressed. And next, let's talk about what does the leader need to do. You, you know, obviously, you know that what the leader needs to do is give autonomy and, uh, and, and not micromanage. And the reason I'm saying that is because, well, for 78% of employees, that's what they need to be creative and productive. And, and research showed that. Uh, but can the leader give autonomy? So I'll go back to how I started the episode. The leader would only give autonomy, 67% correlation with whether the leader, the, the leader trusts the employee. 
So do you trust the employee that you know you need to give autonomy to? Now, in some roles, again, uh, autonomy is not needed. In fact, autonomy is bad. Uh, you want them to do exactly what they need to do, especially in uh, kind of a checklist uh, uh, checklist jobs uh, where you have to do step one, two, three, four. You don't create anything. You, you don't use creativity. But even productivity, by the way, is affected by autonomy. So let, let's go to roles into employees that need autonomy. Okay, 78% of employees value autonomy, need autonomy. Autonomy leads to creativity and productivity. So we want to give autonomy, but the leader will never give autonomy if they don't trust that employee. What would make them trust the employee? Well, I'll go back to law, the trust law number eight, and that's trust is a two-person game. The level of trust that the leader has in their employee is the product of the leader's trustability, the leader's willingness to trust people in general, or whatever category you're going to put this employee in, still relatively general, and the specific employee's trustworthiness. Now, there is no such thing as the trustability in a specific employee. No, that's the trustworthiness. Trustability of the leader, the leader's trustability is the leader's willingness to trust people in general or the leader's willingness to trust uh, whatever group or category you're going to put this employee in. So the reason the, the leader is not going to trust the employee could be one of two. The employee cannot be trusted, an untrustworthy employee, or the leader has low trustability. So let's let's start with the, the first one, the, the untrustworthy employee. If the leader, and again, I'm going to go back, trust to, to, this is trust law number three, trust is personal, but trust is relative. There is no such thing as someone who's trustworthy by everyone except maybe Walter Cronkite, and even he was only ranked, uh, I think, uh, what was it, uh, uh, 78%, I think, maybe, uh, back in 1972 as the most trusted person in America. Nobody is going to be trusted by everyone. You can't be trusted by everyone. In fact, and I'll go back to trust law number three, the same behavior that can cause one person to trust you can cause another person to distrust you. So when we're asking, when I'm asking whether the employee is trustworthy or not, it has to be through the eyes of that leader. Once we isolated the leader's trustability in general, which is what I'll talk about next. So what if the employee is untrustworthy through the eyes of that specific leader? The question to ask is, can it be fixed? Let's break it down. What are the components? Competence. The leader does not think the employee is competent. Can it be fixed? Well, it depends on why. Uh, is the employee not competent because they don't have enough training? Give them training. Give them training, then you're going to trust them, then you're going to give them uh, uh, autonomy and not micromanage them. Uh, do they not have the right certification? Well, should they get the right certification? Do they not? 
well, do they not finish things on time? That's that's going to be a little more problematic. And maybe that's not part of competence. Maybe this is, I'll leave this to personality compatibility. You'll see the different uh, specific items can fall into more than one category or or multiple categories at, at the same time. So competence, ask yourself, do you not think that this employee is competent? If not, why? Can it be fixed? Can you do something about it? If the answer is no, we got a problem. The problem is not the leader's unwillingness to give uh, uh, autonomy and the leader's uh, desire to micromanage. It's the leader doesn't think the employee is competent and the leader is not doing anything about it. Next, time and intimacy. That's that's relatively an easy one, except it takes time and it takes intimacy to resolve. Sometimes we don't trust someone because we don't interact with them uh, frequently enough, for long enough, on a regular basis, uh, and not in person, face-to-face, where, you know, again, for me to trust you, I need to hear what you say to see what you say and see the consistency. And as Albert Morabian said, when the words and the message carried within them, between them, through your body language, are inconsistent, people distrust you. So it's on me as a leader to meet with that employee more frequently, more in person. That would help build trust as long as that employee is trustworthy. Because guess what? When you increase time, you increase intimacy, you increase the probability and the speed in which you're going to see if that employee is someone you can trust. The component of symmetry is a little tricky in a relationship between a leader and an an employee because it is... um, the relationship is asymmetrical by definition. But there, there is symmetry by the fact that uh, we're on the same side. We're we're following the same vision. We believe in the same mission. Uh, there is an enemy on the other side, and the enemy can be the market, the uh, you know competition, budget, whatever. But but we put the the enemy on the other side. So it, it's it's tricky because there is an asymmetry inherent to a relationship between a leader and an employee. But there are a lot of components of symmetry that can be implemented by the leader and and, and verbalized and communicated by the leader to make the employee feel that you're on the same side. But really, right now, we're talking about whether you, the leader, feel that you're on the same side with the employee enough that you can trust them. Now, it, it gets even trickier when we start talking about personality, compatibility, and positivity, because this is very, very personal. If there is something and by the way, I'll, I'll go back to one of my studies. I found that the highest correlation to trust is shared values. That was 86% correlation I found between trust and shared values. And so if I don't feel that we share values, we need to discuss it. Now, by values, I don't necessarily mean where do we stand on uh guns and abortion and immigration or education. No, that, that, those are not necessarily the values that I'm talking about. Although, if for the leader or the employee, those do rise up to the higher priority and they are at odds with one another, then we do have an issue. Also, we need to keep in mind that personality compatibility doesn't mean that we're the same. It means that we are compatible. 
we can be complementary and and as a result be compatible so this is why i'm using compatibility and not really shared values as as the only thing I remember one of my bosses, uh, every time I would bring something to her, uh, she would like immediately have an, an allergic reaction to it. Uh, she, she would immediately say no. And the reason she would immediately say no was because for me, I like somebody, when somebody wants something from me, I like them to start with the bottom line. It gives me context. Then I asked them, tell me why. Why do you think that's the right thing? But at least I have context. For her, it was the, the other way around. When I gave her the bottom line, she did not see my thinking process and she had the allergic reaction because it came out of the blue to her. So she wanted me to start by sharing my thought process and only end with the bottom line. This is not a value, but this is a behavior thing. This is a personality thing. And we were different. And what I found, by the way, was that uh, uh, if I remember correctly, 76% of people uh want to get the bottom line first i'm sorry 72 percent want to get the bottom line first 16 percent want to get it last but when you start correlating uh, all the combinations of people you're going to find that 75 percent of people would be on the same side of this argument or, or don't care but 25 percent of them are going to be at odds over that and therefore not trust each other so the easiest way to do that is is really what I did, and that's I discussed it with her. I asked her, do you want to get the bottom line first or last? And she said, I want you to take me through your thought process first and then get to the bottom line. I changed how I did that, and guess what? She started trusting me from that moment on. So you can discuss, you can resolve these differences. What happens when you can't resolve it? What happens when there is a competence issue that cannot be resolved? If the employee, the reasons that I cannot trust the employee, that I see, I as a leader, see the employee as untrustworthy, if the reason cannot be fixed, I am making, if, if I stay in this relationship, I need to know that I'm making a conscience decision to uh, not have a high level of creativity and productivity. Because I don't trust them, I'm not going to give them autonomy, I'm going to micromanage them. By the way, it, it takes a toll on me as well, on me, on my time, on my energy. Uh, and, and I don't get the level of creativity and productivity that I should get if I did give them autonomy and not micromanage them. So, I have to ask, I have to find out, first of all, if the reason I don't trust this employee is because of the employee's untrustworthiness or my untrustability, which I'll talk about in a minute. And if it's the employee untrustworthiness in my eyes, I have to see if I can fix it. If, if it can be fixed, let's fix it, let's resolve it so I can trust you and I will give you autonomy and I will not micromanage you and we will get the creativity and productivity that we can get. And if it cannot be fixed, I need to make a decision. Am I willing to continue in this less productive, less creative way or I need to sever this relationship? I know that that's not how we think. We can sever relationships, but there is no magic in this. 
I'm making a decision to for the organization to not be creative and productive by keeping an employee that I can't trust and can't help them fix that uh, that relationship. But I already told you that there are two possible reasons why the leader can't trust the employee. One of them is because the employee is untrustworthy through the leader's eyes. We talked about that. The other is that I have low trustability in general, in people, or in this specific employee. Now, why do I have it? We're the sum of our experiences. Um... Uh, Maybe it's the experiences I went through life that made me not trust people. Maybe that's how I am. Maybe it's genetic. Doesn't matter. The bottom line is that I have low trustability. So the next question is, can I get over it? Well, that's that's a hard one to get over with. But... Uh, This takes me back to uh, trust law number six, that trust is reciprocal. And when I talk about the reciprocity of trust, uh, what I say is that if you trust someone and you show them that you trust them, they will behave in a trustworthy way. Can I start with trust? And, and what I show is that, you know, if uh, my employee started at, let's say, 50% trustworthiness, If I started at zero level trust, the level of employee trustworthiness is going to start declining when they see I don't trust them. My level of trust in them will start uh, increasing because I I can see that to some extent I can trust them. Let's just say that theoretically, hypothetically, uh, we end up at about 25% trust in them and their trustworthiness. If I started at 100% and they are at 50% trust uh, trustworthiness, then uh, you know I will obviously realize that I trusted them a little more than they they did earn. Uh, but they will, due to cognitive dissonance, start increasing their own trustworthiness level. And let's say that hypothetically and theoretically, we're going to end up at 75%. So I should start at 100%, give 100% trust, right? No, that's not realistic. That's going to make me feel so strong that I'm in danger because I know what the risks are and I'm trusting somebody that I know or feel or think should not be trusted that much by a lot more. So I'm not advocating that you start at 100%. What I'm saying is ask yourself, how much can I trust this employee? And let's say, again, hypothetically, theoretically, and I talked about in in previous uh, episodes, I talked about um, measuring and assessing trustworthiness. But let's say that that I can assume that, that I can assess my employee's trustworthiness and that it would be on a rank of zero to 100%. And I decided that it's at 73%. Start by trusting them at 78%. Not at 100%, it's 78%. 5% more. The, the important part here is that you trust them a little more than you believe they earned. Because then they will start behaving in a slightly more trustworthiness, uh, trustworthy way. And you will feel that, uh, well, you know, maybe now they're at 75. Maybe now I can trust them at 80. And it's going to take time. But overall, the trend is going in the positive direction. 
towards the trust trustworthiness cycle whereas if i trust them less than they earn then we're starting to go down and down and down and down uh, into the distrust untrustworthiness uh, cycle so can i get over it you can only answer it if you're a leader you can only answer it yourself by answering can i trust that person a little more than i believe they earned trust or they're trustworthy what if i can't what if i can't get over it get over my low trust ability Back in 2005, that boss of mine sent me to the Center for Creative Leadership in Colorado Colorado Springs for a week worth of uh, leadership training. Now, I don't know if there was a hidden message or not so hidden message in that, but she did send me there. I did go there for a week. And um, at that time, I was running a business unit that was generating about $90 million a year in revenue with 89 people, four of which were directly reporting to me. And I would say that there was a trust issue. Um, and, and maybe part of it was because of time and intimacy. And, and maybe there are other reasons. And, and I'm not going to try and dig into that right now. But the bottom line was that after a week of uh, you know going over all of the assessments that we've done before the event, uh, the self-assessments, the 360 assessment. There are a lot of assessments going into the uh, that program. But in the last day, Friday morning, I sat down with a psychologist, with an organizational psychologist. I uh, didn't have any psychological issues. But uh, actually, I would say we all have psychological issues all the time. But I sat with the psychologist and um, she said, she suggested that we frame our discussion around the question. Now, I had a lot of experience with startup companies. And at the time, I was working for a company that was a Fortune 200 company um, and uh, was obviously not a startup. And she said, why don't we frame the question or, or the discussion around the question, am I a startup person or a large company person? Which, by the way, is a great question. It's a great framing question for a leader, especially a leader coming from a startup into a large company. I had a question that bothered me even more. And I suggested, why don't we frame our conversation around the question, am I a leader or an individual contributor? I love being an individual contributor. You know something? What I do right now, developing this framework of trust habits and all, that's an individual contributor role. I'm not leading a group of people to develop this. I'm doing it myself. And I love doing it. I loved writing software in the past. So am I a leader or an individual contributor? We talked for about two hours. And after two hours, uh, we were done. We had the graduation, got on a plane, landed back in Dallas. Monday morning, went to my boss and said, I quit. I didn't quit the company. I wanted to quit my job. I did not want to lead those people. By the way, at that point, that's a very tough decision. We live in a world, well, I wouldn't say a world, but, but in our country, leadership is something to strive to. We even go as far as say, everybody's a leader. No, not everybody's a leader. Trust me, 
Not everybody's a leader. Not everybody wants to be a leader. Not everybody is feeling a role of a leader. When you're developing software and you're sitting in your own cube doing that all day long, you are not a leader. And I'm not going to tell you that you're a leader just because it's the politically correct statement to make. We have a whole bunch of leadership programs at, you know, at the government and in companies and in, in nonprofit and anywhere. Everybody wants to be a leader. Not everybody should be a leader. If you ever heard of a book called The Peter Principle, you may know The Peter Principle. You just didn't know that it was actually a book. I have that book. In essence, The Peter Principle says that a person will forever be promoted to their level of incompetence. Think about that. A person will always get promoted to their level of incompetence. What we do is we take a great individual contributor, best software programmer ever, And because they're so great, we promote them and we make them leaders of others while they might not be good leaders. And you know when they get stuck in a job, in a a role? When they're not good at it and they're not going to get promoted anymore. Why promote them there if they're not a good leader? That's what I felt about myself. I know I'm I'm being vulnerable with you right now, but that's what I felt about myself. I did not think that I was a good leader. And what I felt was that I had low trustability. I felt, and you know what, rightfully so, that the things that I did as an individual contributor, I did them better than my employees. Fair enough, but that doesn't make me a good leader. It makes me a great individual contributor. It's a tough decision to make in a company. I mean, everybody, even in a company with 35,000 employees, everybody who's on a leadership path keeps thinking about, oh, I'm going to go up and go go up and, uh, you know, where's the top? The top is to be the CEO. The moment you say, I don't want to be a leader, is the moment you say, I will never be the CEO of this company and probably no other company. So ask yourself, do you have low trustability in people in general or in your employees or however you categorize them in still in general, but a little more particular? Can you get over it? Do you want to get over it? I don't. I enjoy being an individual contributor. I want to stay an individual contributor. I don't want to lead people. I don't trust people. And that's fine. You know, people sometimes uh, tell me, uh, wait, how come you don't trust people if you're such an expert on trust? Well, obviously, the first answer is exactly because of that. But really, the, the reason is because I have low trustability. You know, I have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, but low trustability. That's who I am. Do I want to change it? No. Do I have to change it? No. I just found what I do. I found my passion in being an individual contributor, and that's what I want to do. Ask yourself the same question. Do you trust people? And if the answer is no, do you not trust them because they're untrustworthy or because you have low trustability? I mean, if you don't trust one person, it's probably because they're untrustworthy. If you don't trust a group of people, you probably have low trustability. And then ask yourself, can I get over it? Do I want to get over it? And if the answer is no, 
Don't try to be a leader. And, and this is kind of uh, supposed to be the second uh, title or subtitle for this uh, podcast uh, podcast episode. And that's uh, people with low trustability should not be leaders. This is the end of the 66th episode, which is also the last in season six. This is episode 12 of season six. We're going to take a one week break. And Season 7 will begin in October 2nd. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.